would say uh, summing up sharing the gospel in about three words time money and effort uh, it has become who we are it has become what we do uh, his stuff his boat his uh, our homes our houses it's his stuff and so it gets to be uh, you know, what do you want me to do with your stuff I use what God has given me and I go do what I like to do. Um, the only difference is I invite people to go with me and I let them do the cool stuff. Um, you're running trot lines. Uh, I don't get on the front of the boat and show them how to run a trot line. We put them up there. They're involved. They're part of it. They're, they're catching the fish. A lot of these guys, are, they're better than we are. Um, cooking. You know, we let people do the cooking. Um, you're installing value. You're installing uh, an importance. Um, we need you, and I need you to do this. And a lot of times, again, they're better at us than, than what we're doing. But it allows us to do what we naturally like to do. Um, we have equipment. It runs pretty good. You know, uh, God takes care of us in that. And so we're using what he's given us to bear fruit. So it's really an easy vehicle. It's not you don't have to create or fabricate something to do. Uh, we share with a lot of people just go do what you like to do but just invite people to go with you I see that it takes a lot of time to develop good healthy relationships uh, relationships that last people want to especially if they're new if they're being hurt or broken uh, they want to be able to trust you and uh, so I'd say uh, spend a little time around the coffee pot spend a little time around the fish cooking baiting lines doing stuff it takes effort it takes a lot of effort it takes some money um, you'd be wore out and tired but I've noticed by spending time money and effort and depositing in others uh, that they get it our treasure is to save as many people as possible we realize the, the hurt and the brokenness that we've gone through that others have gone through and so what's worth it is it worth it to spend a long night spend your money you really don't have um, yeah, it's worth it. When people get it, when people get it, uh, we praise God. And uh, we know the, the ones that may not have yet, uh, that seeds have been deposited. Good morning, church. I want to echo what Brian said this morning during communion. Welcome to 2016. The, the guy on that video's name is Chad Johnson, and he is one of the leaders in our Celebrate Recovery Fishers of Men ministry. So these guys go out of 52 weekends a year and they fish on the river and they bring men and women and, and fellowship and just like Chad was saying, they, they try to evangelize and encourage these guys. And I just want to tell you, church, that you, you are sitting in one of the best churches in the world. You really are. There are yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And here's why I'm saying that, and I do want to brag on Chad a little bit. Chad uh, is, is a unique guy. It, it, nationally and worldwide, he's a unique guy because he's not being paid 52 weeks out of the year to take men and women fishing on the river. And not only is he taking them fishing on Friday, but Thursday night he's baiting hooks and preparing so that the Friday night fishing trip is enjoyable. But he's doing ministry all throughout the week, and it's not just Chad, but it's Brian. It's, I could pick out men and women all over this congregation 
who are giving and sharing freely of their time, of their money, and of their effort. Those kinds of individuals at this church are fairly prevalent. There's a lot of them here. That's what makes this congregation so awesome. But worldwide, that's not the case. There are not a lot of people who are sacrificing to that degree. Chad is one of those guys. And and what he mentioned is he, he takes people so frequently that they even become better fishermen than he is. And I've actually been on a fishing trip with Chad, and it wouldn't take much to become a better fisherman than Chad is. Okay? So you guys should go, and you'll find out. What's the secret? How are people in this community of believers that gather together at White's Ferry Road on Sunday morning, how are they able to give so freely? Well, it's like Chad was saying on the video, they have found a way to take their pain and tragedy and trial in life and make it purposeful, to make it meaningful. This is the culmination of the sermon series that we've been preaching you up to this point. This is the final message. This is the message where you transform your pain into something meaningful, into something that has purpose. We've covered how God is real. He really does exist, and none of us are Him. We have to really surrender our life and our will over to God if we're going to experience spiritual transformation in this life. And we've got to allow God to, to help us learn what our character defects are and to start to remove some of those character defects from us. We've talked about how we've got to search through our history and find the people that we've wronged and when it's necessary and helpful to make amends for some of that wrongdoing and to maintain some of those changes on a daily basis by finding time to fellowship with God in prayer and scripture reading and meditation every single day. And now is the point where we share our journey of transformation. So I hope you brought a pen today. I'm going to try to be not only theoretical, but also practical. I want to share with you some specific ways you can transform your pain into something purposeful. You can actually find meaning in the middle of your pain. But to get us started this morning, I want you to turn with me in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The context here, which I don't have on the screen, is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. This is a book written by the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul starts to expound on some of the experiences that he's gone through in his earthly ministry. I want to read this to you before I get into our text this morning as you're getting your pen and your Bibles handy. Paul says to his audience, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the trouble we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure it so that we even despised of life itself. In verse 9 he says, Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who literally raises the dead. So I want you to understand that the, the selection of Scripture I've chosen this morning is not written by a guy whose life was easy. It wasn't written by a guy who was unfamiliar with pain and tragedy and struggle. It was written by a man who had been through such severe suffering, he would say, it's almost like I received a death sentence to have gone through some of the things that I've been through. Let's pick up 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3. The Bible says this, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we're distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. The reality is that anyone in this auditorium or listening online that has been through any kind of a struggle or any length of suffering, we've all sought for comfort in something. It's the human condition to try and alleviate suffering. Unfortunately for most of us, our first choice is to seek for something in this world to alleviate my suffering. We've turned to things like pharmaceutical drugs or self-help books, or I'm a therapist by academic training, so I can say this, even therapists, for alleviation of our struggle. And what those of us who have found, what those of us who have searched for the answer to our struggles in life have found when we've looked for those answers in things that are not God, is that those things seem to only complicate and even increase the same pain we were trying to avoid in the first place. What we see in our text this morning is that the provider of authentic comfort, comfort that really does alleviate pain, is the Lord God Himself. The Apostle Paul uses Two descriptive phrases to give us some sense of how God actually comforts and provides comfort for men and women on earth. He says, praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Father of compassion. This is a Greek word. It's oikteromonim. It's a Greek word, oikteromonim. This is the kind of word we would probably more easily understand as the word mercy. But this isn't some kind of mercy where I just have this benevolent attitude towards another and they're unchanged as a result of my compassion or my mercy towards them. This is the type of mercy or compassion that compels one to behave differently. Jesus uses this word in Luke's Gospel in the 6th chapter in the 36th verse. I'm going to read starting in verse 35 to give you some context. He says, love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be the children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Here's the word in verse 36. Be oikteromonis, be merciful as your father is oikteromon, merciful. The mercy that God shows us is this kind of mercy. It's the kind of attitude that would compel one to love one's enemies. Even to do good for them. Even to lend to them without expecting anything back. Imagine the name of someone that you would consider an enemy. Now imagine their response. If instead of trying to resist them and stay away from them, you instead tried to fellowship with them and relate to them. Even love them. 
And now imagine you gave them a large sum of money up to, let's say, $10,000 and didn't expect anything in return. Would that compassion not compel your enemy to action? This is the kind of compassion that God shows to each of us through Jesus Christ, His Son. The Apostle Paul also describes God as a God of comfort. Wanted to do a, a, another Greek word study here for you just so you have a good sense of what Paul is saying. The Greek word here for comfort is paraklesis. This word implies both a judicial and lasting comfort. It implies that we have someone that fights alongside us to argue on our behalf, to stand in our defense the same way an attorney would today. Based on my uh, experience in life, I've had the opportunity to sit in courtrooms with men and women who are on trial for crimes that they've committed. And that atmosphere is really hard to describe. There's all these legal experts present and everybody wearing suits and it seems very formal and stuffy. It's certainly anxiety inducing. But it would be hard for me to describe to you how the atmosphere of the room shifts when the attorney who represents the person that I'm there to support walks into the room and sits by the side of the accused man or woman. How the atmosphere shifts, how their demeanor changes, the nature of the context seems to inherently shift simply because a person who is an advocate arrives on the scene. To defend and fight for the accused. This word is actually the same root word that the New Testament uses to describe the Holy Spirit. The word in our text today is paraklesis. The word used to describe the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is paraclete. This is the word the Lord Jesus Christ uses to describe the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14 and verse 16. Jesus says, I will pray to the Father... And He will give you another helper, paracleton, that He may abide with you forever. And I think in, in Christianity, don't we have these platitudes that are like really catchy to say, but really hard to practically live? For example, God's going to give you comfort, or, or just give it to God, or let God deal with it. Those are really nice platitudes. They're sayings that... We tell people in the midst of trial, but what practically does it look like for God to comfort us in the midst of struggle? Well, what Jesus is getting at here in John 14, 16 is that He is going to go to the Father. And He is going to send us another helper, paracleton. But the word another in the Greek is the Greek word allos, meaning another of the same kind. The other word he could have used to describe another helper would be heteros, another of a different kind. Now, I've described for you the effect that an attorney has as he walks in the courtroom and sits next to his client and is ready to advocate or fight for the client he represents. Now, transform your mind back to the age where Jesus would have been on the earth and his disciples would have been following him. And imagine the disciples in the middle of a really tense situation. For example, there's a storm raging and they don't know how they're going to make it through the storm. Or there's 5,000 people who are hungry and all there is is a couple of loaves and some fish. And they have no sense of how to 
feed everybody, and then Jesus steps on to the scene. Imagine what would happen to the disciples. What we know in Scripture is that there would be a sense of comfort come over them as a result of Jesus' presence. But Jesus said to us in John 14, 16, Friends, listen, I am sending another of the same kind of helper, just like me, Alos. It's the same kind. And the Holy Spirit's presence in the life of a Christian should comfort us to the same degree that Jesus' physical presence comforted the disciples in the midst of their trials and their struggles. And this, no doubt, is the secret to the Apostle Paul's success. This is why he's using these words in Greek. I know that the paraclete, the comforter that is from God is with me. That's why I can be at the point of death and still find a way to hang on and push through and stay committed and even be peaceful and joyful because the giver of comfort is not of this world. Therefore, nothing of this world can steal my comfort. If that's, if that's the nature of how God comforts us, what's the purpose? Let's get back to our text here in 2 Corinthians Let's pick it up in verse 4, the later half of verse 4. The Apostle Paul says, We have been comforted so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. I think the purpose of comfort is clear and it's plain and it's straightforward. Your God is a God of love. When you're in distress, He's moved with compassion to provide comfort for you. Not because of works of righteousness that you've done. It's not because you're so worthy of His comfort or you're so spiritually mature. He notices you uh, out of the other people in the community or over the other people in the community. It's simply because God loves you. That He has compassion on you in your struggles. And He moves to comfort you in the middle of them. But it's God's will for you to not let your comfort that you've received to be hid under a bushel. Or to be a city tucked back in the woods where no one can see that's really exclusive and only the people who happen to find their way there can enjoy the comfort that God has given them. God wishes that your comfort would be a light that shines brightly for Him or a city that's atop of a hill that's easy to be seen. The reason you have been comforted, those of you who have received comfort, is to show that same compassion with Tirman to others. So that they can be comforted by the paraclete, the comforter, the God of comfort. But you know, sometimes it's difficult to really move ourselves to the point of saying something to someone. I mean, let's face it, not everybody has a degree in theology or counseling. Or some of us really have gone through enough struggle or suffering that we feel inadequate to share what God can do for others. But Paul says the process of receiving comfort is much simpler than a doctorate level degree. He said all you've got to do is comfort other people. All you have to do is take steps to really connect and let God do the rest. How is it then that we can receive comfort for our pain? What's that process actually look like? You know, I have in my home a seven and a five and a three year old. 
And as objectively and non-biased as a human being can be, my three-year-old is the cutest kid on planet Earth, man. He is his mom made over, and it's just mind-boggling to look at how precious he is. And that's not biased. It's totally objective, okay? So the process of receiving comfort for him, and like those of you who have young children know, when a child falls down and skins their knee, the first instinct is to literally run to the source of comfort. And so my three-year-old, if he gets injured to any extent, immediately is looking for mom. Now, that's despite his dad's best effort to lure him away from seeking comfort in mom and swaying him to seek comfort in dad. But no candy bribes or financial bribes or any other kind of bribes have here today been successful at swaying him from seeking comfort in mom and getting him to seek comfort in his dad. And I think there's a useful metaphor there. I think the world is trying constantly to sway you and sway me from seeking comfort in God the Father. And instead is using bribes of candy or money or fame or popularity or being well-liked to get you to seek for your resolution to suffering in anything other than God. And what my three-year-old finds when he's in the arms of his mother is the same thing that each of us find when nothing can distract us from running to God and seeking to be comforted in the arms of God. That it just makes sense. It's just comforting to be in the arms of a living, breathing God who is for you, who is with you, who is your advocate, and who will show you mercy. That's why we who have been delivered from suffering can't cease from trying to tell everybody the truth of how we've been comforted. Because there really, truly is an authentic solution. The process of comfort is first receiving comfort for pain in the arms of the comforter. The second piece of that is seeing purpose in pain. In Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, we find the culmination of the story of a man named Joseph. Now Joseph was victim of just about all the kinds of horrors one could experience in their own family of origin. He had abandonment issues. He was pathologically mistreated. He was put in a pit simply because he was well liked. He was wrongly accused and imprisoned. Yet he stayed faithful through all of these ordeals and had to experience them simply because of his family's jealousy. And in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, Joseph is standing in Pharaoh's court in Egypt, which just so happens to be the only location regionally that has any food. There's a severe famine on the land. And Joseph's family has been driven to Egypt to seek some source of relief for the famine and purchase some stores of food from Pharaoh in Egypt. And Joseph is the man in charge of divvying out the stores of food. And he had every opportunity in that moment to retaliate, to seek revenge. He had every opportunity in that moment to send his family packing and it would be really likely that they would die as a result of the severity of the famine. Instead, in that moment, he addresses them with compassion and mercy and shares with them some of the compassion and mercy that God had shown to him. 
And in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, he says, What you guys have meant for harm, God has used for good to save multitudes of people. Friends, that's the purpose of your pain. The purpose of your pain is so that you and your story and your suffering can influence multitudes towards Christ, the source of comfort and pain relief. So how exactly can we transmit comfort to others? I want you to write these down if you've got a pen handy. These are all throughout Scripture and personally and professionally They're self-evident truths, meaning as you live these out, they'll reaffirm their accuracy and validity in the context in which you practice them. How do I transmit my comfort to others? The first step in transmission of comfort to others is to remember that relationships are always more valuable than your rhetoric. Relationships are always more valuable than your rhetoric. To share with you a little bit of my personal story, I've been to eight different inpatient psychiatric or drug abuse treatment centers in the course of my life. Spent over a year in inpatient treatment. Most people wouldn't survive that because there are a lot of crazy people in mental health institutions, right? But none of those places helped save one. And in the one place that really helped me, the people there really loved me, regardless of what I did, and I'll just share this just really quickly. I had escaped, was arrested, brought back, it got written up in the paper. I broke into the medicine cabinet, stole meds, and distributed them to the other residents at the facility. Escaped again, they couldn't find me. When I came back, they ended up having to tell me that I had to leave. But through all of those, and even more that I don't have time to disclose, kind of shenanigans that I was pulling, and I know looking at me, you would never guess that I would be the type of guy that would do that. They showed me an unconditional kind of love. They stayed with me in the tough times. They weren't derailed simply because I was an extra grace required kind of individual. Friends, that's the essence of the life of Jesus Christ. His first instinct is to relate to another as opposed to have a dialogue and condemn another. His first instinct is to heal. His first instinct is to love and then remedy the spiritual issue. That brings me to my second point. If you're going to transmit your comfort to others, relationship is more valuable than rhetoric. Kindness is more valuable than condemnation. The study that I cite about twins who are adopted into different families at birth uh, comes to bear on this specific point. There were some researchers who were interested in whether or not spiritual behavior of individuals as adults was genetic or had something to do with the way these people were raised. So twins adopted to two different families were followed throughout the course of their life and then later in life, these researchers tried to decide which family seemed to most positively influence spiritual commitment later in life. Here's what they found. Non-religious families could raise spiritual children. And highly religious families might not raise spiritual children. You know what the one deciding factor is in whether or not individuals function at a high level spiritually later in life were? Is whether or not the family showed kindness to others through the life of the child. That's the number one thing. I think so often we get so 
focused on dotting every religious I and crossing every religious T, that we lose sight of the meat and depth of the gospel. That it's ultimately a gospel of comfort, compassion, and dare I say kindness, rather than condemnation. That's what's so unfathomable about the gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ, His Son. The last way to transmit your comfort to others is to value people's situation over your own structure. Here's what I mean by that. It's more useful if you could catch a person when they fall and then reveal truth, situational, than trying to get people to fit into your structure and then assuming they have truth once they're doing it your way. I think we have to be patient in our faith. I think we have to be kind in our faith. And I think we have to have a relational approach to transmission of comfort rather than a rhetorical approach. What what does this all produce? What's ultimately the product of comfort? If we look on screen here, we see the tail end of our selection in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul says in, in verse 6, If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. There are four things that a life that is comforted by Jesus Christ will produce. The first of those that Paul mentions is salvation. This is the evidence of victory, and this is our goal, to see people saved, period. When people are saved, our suffering is worth something. Some of you out there might be saying, yeah, but Trent, I haven't shared my testimony. People don't necessarily know all the hardships and trials and tribulations and sufferings that I've faced. I want to tell you something, sir or ma'am. Your battle scars are being used as long as you're living a life in total surrender to Jesus Christ. God's using your story even if you never tell it and even if you cannot see how He is using it. So be patient. And this is the evidence of spiritual maturity. Are you patient? Do you have that capacity? You show me a patient person, I'll show you someone who's spiritually mature. You show me an unpatient person, I'll show you someone who is spiritually immature. You don't believe me? Look at the lives of some of the greatest people of our Christian faith. Joshua and Caleb, for example, waited 40 years traveling around in the wilderness before they got to see the land of promise. That's patience. Abraham waited 99 years to have a son with Sarah, the son of promise. And Sarah, by the way, waited 90 years. The Apostle Paul, who already had a doctorate in theology at the point of his conversion, waited another six years before he started his missionary work. And how about our Lord Jesus, who waited 30 years before starting his earthly ministry? Sometimes the secret to success and suffering is just to be patient, knowing that God is at work and being willing to share that secret of your success with others. Not only do we have to be patient, the Apostle Paul says in these scriptures, we have to have endurance that people who learn to be patient in suffering will endure the hardships 
that they experience. Think about an endurance athlete, someone who runs triathlons or marathons. What these people know is that suffering is only going to last temporarily. They train, therefore, to function at maximum capacity during their suffering so that they can come out of their suffering having gained the maximum benefit for it. Our suffering, too, can be a training ground of sorts if we'll let it. And if we'll use our suffering as an opportunity to grow, we will endure suffering with poise and we will inspire others to do the same, thereby finding purpose in the midst of our pain. The last thing that the Apostle Paul mentions in our selection of Scripture this morning is hope. Hope is knowing that God, the living, all-powerful, all-knowing God, is working for your good and for mine at all times. In terms of having hope in the midst of pain, C.S. Lewis has this to say. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain is a wake-up call, friends. Are you asleep this morning? Are you asleep this morning? Have you been a spiritual bench warmer? A Sunday morning only Christian who just comes to check off another item of the list? Are you in the midst of suffering and not going to the source of all comfort? Or have you been comforted and you're hiding your comfort under a bushel or you're tucked back in some corner where no one can see and thus not living God's purpose for your life? Maybe you've never been baptized into Christ and received comfort for your pain. Whatever your need is this morning, my prayer is that you will start 2016 off living differently and finding purpose. So bring your needs forward this morning while together we stand and sing.